Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everyone. A quick heads up before we start the show. Unchained now has a merchandise shop. We've got a few t-shirts, a couple hats, and a mug. My team and I got creative with one of the t-shirt designs and came up with an image of a crypto rabbit falling down a hole. Swirling into the hole with the rabbit are playing cards showing some of the coins like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Monero, as well as a DAO card ripped in half. There's a Guy Fox mask, a DeFi cake, a Lambo, and a teapot that says HODL, as well as teacups showing the Reddit and Twitter logos. There's even a shitcoin. The rabbit is wearing a big Bitcoin key on a keychain, a unicorn and rainbow t-shirt, and, of course, is listening to Unchained. Check it out at shop.unchainedpodcast.com. Again, that's shop.unchainedpodcast.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the market names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost with no fees or markups. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Want more? Download the Crypto.com app today. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Today's guest is writer Nathaniel Rich. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thanks for having me. You wrote an excellent article on the, is it Quadriga or Quadriga? Uh, I, I say quadriga, though, in truth, it depends, I think, who you're talking to. Okay, because I used to say quadriga. And then when I read it was like for the Roman chariots, I was like, oh, it should be like quadriga. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I studied Latin and I still I'm not sure. I, I, I think in Canada, I heard quadriga more often, but I can't bring myself to pronounce it that way. Oh, okay. Because I think that's, yeah, more like an English pronunciation and then quadriga is more like Italian. But anyway, okay. Oh, maybe that's why I go there. Yeah. <laughs> so you wrote this great article on, we'll just say quadriga, uh, the, the quadriga exchange for Vanity Fair. And I think most of my listeners will know this exchange as being the Canadian exchange that closed after the owner, Gerald Cotton, mysteriously died in India. And because he was the only one with the private keys... Um, that meant that the $250 million owned by the 75,000 users of Quadriga was not accessible. However, there were a number of clues, such as the fact that he created his will shortly before his death, that he knew that an exchange needed to have backups of private keys, etc., that this may not have actually been an error. So what did you find out about Gerald Cotton and his background? 
Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's a good account of what the original story was, that he had lost the, – the attention was on this this idea that he had lost his keys to the, the wallets, the cold wallets that all the funds were on. But it, it quickly was determined really by people on anonymous accounts online commenting on Reddit and Twitter and, and the like that those wallets were in fact probably empty um, or that a lot of mo- money had already moved out of them. And, and that was indeed borne out once Ernst & Young, the accounting firm that was tasked with tracking down all of the money by a, by a court – um, had access to some of the these <clears throat> internal accounts and files, although there weren't there wasn't very good bookkeeping going on. But they basically figured that out as well. And so then then attention started to turn to uh, Cotton himself, who he was, who his business partners were, and what kind of business uh, Quadriga was exactly. Yeah, and so what did you find out about him? I think the main thing to understand about him, uh, or the, the main turn in the investigation and, and public perception of the case is that he wasn't really, um, this persona that he projected, which is this bright, young, um, Bitcoin enthusiast, uh, who is very excited about the, uh, possibilities of, of virtual currency, uh, in a, in a kind of utopian, sense and that he was a kind of can-do businessman who was trying to make it easier to spread, you know, to propagate this tech technology. He really was first and foremost uh, a Ponzi schemer. Um, he had a much, you know, his experience with, with running Ponzi schemes uh, went back to his early high school years when he was 14 or 15. Uh, there are records of his involvement in these very crazy um, labyrinthine websites um, devoted to this online Ponzi scheme world about which I knew very little before investigating, you know, before reporting the piece. Um, but that was really where he lived. And it was only when he was in his mid to late twenties <clears throat> after running a series of rackets for years, for more than a decade that he turned to the idea of a cryptocurrency exchange. And, and once you go in, you know, pretty deep into his history, you start to realize that, or I started to realize that, that Quadriga, um, bore much more in common with these other schemes he had run in the past, uh, than with, you know, the Bitcoin ideology. And so why don't we actually just dive into a couple of these, um, just briefly, because one of them, the one that, yes, he did while he was in high school, that one blew my mind. He was 15 and he started something called SNS Investments, which was a pyramid scheme. The other one was Midas Gold, which I believe uh, people in the crypto space probably should have heard of. And he did that with a partner that he had met in these forums devoted to these so-called High yield investment programs or HYIPs. Can you talk a little bit about who Michael was, you know, what these HYIPs were and a little bit more about their history and like Midas Gold? Yeah. So the, the real turn came when, um, the, the scrutiny turned from Cotton himself to his co-founder, Michael Patron, who it was known to, you know, in, it varied depending on what community you're in, but basically people in the Bitcoin world in Canada, for the most part, knew who he was, knew him personally. It's not a huge world at the time. He was someone who had a shady past that people, you know, which, which didn't necessarily distinguish him 
uh, greatly. There were a lot of people in that in this sphere then, and I'm talking about the early days of Quadriga, 2013, 2014, 2015, around there. Um, there were a lot of people who had, you know, maybe a checkered past who were drawn to this technology. It doesn't mean they were all operating with, with ill intent. Um, but he was certainly one of them. He had a, uh, a record, uh, a criminal record. He'd served time in a federal penitentiary in the U.S. Uh, for his part in a kind of a money, an earlier money laundering scheme. And he had, he had been associated with a number of sort of online, essentially money laundering operations, which depending on how one, you know, the level of illegality kind of depended on how you looked at it and what level of suspension of disbelief you wanted to ascribe to it. Um, but, he, but Midas Gold was, was one of the most popular and it was used um, to transfer um, funds, money, uh, fiat into uh, Liberty Reserve, um, which is sort of a you know predecessor to to some to cryptocurrency uh, kind of cryptocurrency. And so he was he was a middleman in that process. And one thing that was revealed early on was that you know not only did Patron and Cotton uh, have a relationship that went back to. Um, you know, when Cotton was 14 and 15 and, and haunting these, these online forums about HYIPs. Um, but they had worked together on just about every, uh, a number of, 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 of enterprises over the years. Um, usually Patron was more in the kind of financial services area. So operations like Midas Gold were transferring funds from one type of, you know, a fiat into some other kind of currency. Um, and, and cotton tended to do the more sort of outright, um, you know, investment programs, which were basically Ponzi schemes where he would say, you know, give me a hundred dollars and I'll give you back $150 tomorrow, that kind of thing, you know, with varying degrees of sophistication. And, uh, yes, one of the big breaks was that it was determined that it was discovered that Midas Gold, uh, in its, in its online registration documents, used Jerry Cotton's contact information. Um, and that was sort of the first glimpse of, of, uh, this collaboration, professional collaboration that had been going on, um, before Quadriga and really all the way back to, to Cotton's teenage years. Yeah, and one other piece of this was that Michael Patron is actually not Michael Patron. His name is Omar Danani. So um, there's like a whole nother thing about that. But I actually just want to move on to what was actually going on at Quadriga. You wrote, quote, We now know that Cotton began no later than 2015 to steal his clients' funds. He also created dozens of false trading accounts to stimulate trading volume on the platform. In fact, he even disclosed in the 2015 filings this was to go public. He neglected to disclose, however, that he filled those fake accounts with invented funds, trading counterfeit Bitcoin for real Bitcoin and Canadian and, and American dollars. By the time of his death, Cotton's sham trading accounts, which had names like R2D2 and Three PO <laughs> spelled not not the way that they sound, but anyway, you guys, I'll just, uh, you can read it in the article. Had conducted approximately three hundred thousand trades. So you also mentioned other shady things like that he dealt in cash, which is obviously very weird for crypto exchange. And um, you also mentioned though that these business irregularities appear appear to have begun before Patron and the other board members left. So do you think they knew? It's so hard to unravel. I mean, the, 
the, there's so there's so many it's it's scams on top of scams and and sort of crimes on top of crimes that it it it's hard to unravel at a certain point and you know i think and that's that's how i wrote the piece essentially there's d- different theories of the case you know by one theory of the case i think it's 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 impossible not to it's impossible to believe that he started quadriga out of some kind of um for the reasons i guess that he he spoke about it publicly um he it seemed Wait, pretty mean, clear meaning michael um sorry meaning cotton cotton with michael um started he founded quadriga uh and cotton was the public facing representative he's the one who gave interviews and and boosted it um for the most part and of course he spoke about you know the glories of cryptocurrency and how it was really difficult to trade if you were just a normal person without technical expertise and and this was a a, a platform that would make it easy it, it seems by under any interpretation that was not his motivation it seemed to have started as some kind of a scheme the question then is what kind of scheme was it uh was okay it well just so a- you 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 know what let's do this so let's take our ad break right now and so in a moment we're going to discuss your three main theories for what actually happened but first we'll have this quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible will the world follow france and advocate banning privacy coins Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets but don't know where to start building your portfolio? eToro has the answer for you. It's called CopyTrader by eToro. With CopyTrader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too, proportional to your investment. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Back to my conversation with Nathaniel Rich. All right. So let's talk about you, your three main theories. You have three theories. The first being that Quadriga was a scam. The second you dubbed the royal fuck up. And then the third was what you call the mastermind theory. So why don't you just start with the first one? Like what are the events or what's the evidence uh, that you have for the scam theory? Right. Uh, well, I think in all, I should say in all three, they start as a scam. I think that's, that's sort of, uh, <laughs> there's no other possible interpretation, that's true. But, that's true. but what kind of scam is it? And so I think that under the first theory, it was a scam, uh, in this, in the mold of all the other scams he had basically run, uh, to that point, which is he was trying to lure a lot of people onto the platform, get them to deposit money. He was taking a, a percentage, but but it seems that the real the real um, way to make money was once you have a lot of people's money locked up on the account to pull the plug, 
you know, give people excuses, excuses after excuses, and essentially run away with a lot of the money and blame third parties, you know, banks who are uncooperative or software glitches and so on. And, and that stuff started to happen. Indeed, there was a software glitch that seems to have actually been, been real where they lost $14 million in a single, in one fell swoop. There were, um, third party payment processors who had to serve as the platform's intermediary with, with Canadian banks, um, because of the regulations, um, in, in Canada and a bunch of those businesses, which are pretty sh- shady enterprises, uh, to begin with also appeared to have, you know, stolen money and charged huge transaction fees and so on. And however, there's the possibility that at a certain point he started to become convinced, you know, he started to drink the Kool-Aid and started to become convinced that this business actually could be very profitable um, as a legitimate business. Uh, and, and that starts to happen once the price of Bitcoin goes on this stratospheric rise. And so there's, there's, there is a possibility that around 2016, when he made efforts to take the, the company public, that he actually thought, okay, you know, I'm not going to rob, I don't need to rob these people. Um, simply, uh, the volume of trading going on in the exchange was significant enough that I could just make a, a fortune, uh, in this legitimate way. And he was, he was making a lot of money at that time. Um, at, at one point, Quadriga was processing a billion dollars of trades a year, and he was getting a cut of every single one. So that's kind of the best case, the most virtuous, uh, theory is that he started off somewhat corrupt and then tried to, to do good. Uh, and, this, and then this, it just like didn't work out that he, and like, then things started to, yeah, things started to fall apart. Um, so is this now the Royal fuck up theory? Well, no, under, under this first theory, the virtuous theory, then, um, people did steal from him, you know, these third party payment processes oh, stole oh, right. from him, they lost money. And in an effort to try to make back his clients funds, he started to conduct, some questionable trades, you know, moving money out of the exchange, which we know he did, and and making bets on pretty high risk bets on um, on fairly obscure uh, forms of cryptocurrency uh, in an effort to recoup the losses uh, that were legitimate, and then it, it, and and we know for a fact he was making these bets, and the bets spiraled, and he kept, you know, he basically kept doubling down and kept losing. So that's that's sort of the most virtuous best case scenario, and then I, then of course we should say then he goes to honey he goes on his honeymoon in India as things are spiraling and the price of Bitcoin is falling and people are trying to pull their money out of the exchange and there's not enough money in the exchange, uh, and he gets essentially food poisoning he has Crohn's disease and he dies of complications from uh, Crohn's disease in India on his honeymoon. Now the second theory, which I think is the most are you ready? I should ask, are you yeah. ready for the second theory? Yeah. Do you have any questions? Yes. Um, the second theory, which I think is, is <laughs> I am probably sitting on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the most, the kind of Occam's razor theory, the one that, that makes the most sense, although it's not airtight, is that yes, he started as a scam. He started doing once, once the money started flowing in because the market took off, he started basically doing all these other scams on top of it, which some of which included just stealing funds from you know, his clients, you know, he started to just like splash cash around Canada. Um, he bought $12 million in, in real estate properties. He bought a yacht, an airplane. Um, and he was on taking foreign vacations. It seems like almost every other week. 
with his with his wife or to, to be wife. And under this theory, he basically was like a small time scammer who lucked out beyond his wildest imagination and came into a ton of money and uh, lost total control. Um, was not able to 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 keep it up at the scale required of a major you know business and combination of you know frittered it away had money and no oversight had a lot of money stolen from him and then as the money and then you know we still have the same kind of ending which is as as people start to pull out money and there's not enough money to to pay out angry customers he starts to panic and he starts to do these crazy trades and loses even more and again he goes to india and he dies that's like the theory that i think most people who follow it very closely and there's a huge you know there is a very large community of of folks who have obsessively followed every aspect of it including some of the more baroque technical aspects of the case um that one i think if is now at this stage i'd say is about that's sort of the 70 percent theory if you ask most people um okay but what was shocking to me and that was my theory going into the reporting once i'd done sort of my original reading about the piece I assume that's what had happened. Some version of that had happened. I would have said, you know, 99% chance that's what happened. Yeah. It was shocking yeah. to and me. That, so I'm going to let you do the third theory, but we need to also then after this address like the death, you know, like whether that was accidental. Yes. But anyway, okay. So third theory. <laughs> well, so what was shocking to me about the reporting um, was that I went from say 99.9% sure that that the you know the the fuck up theory as I laid out was what had happened to more like seventy percent because everybody I spoke to the people with the greatest authority on uh, you know the people who had both investigated it the most and the lawyers on the case um, at this Bay Street law firm Miller Thompson which is representing the class of defrauded um, you know the creditor class all that seventy five thousand plus people who've lost money on the exchange. And even talking to, to people, of course, the FBI and the RCMP in Canada wouldn't talk to me, um, but those who've been interviewed by them, and both of those you know, organizations are conducting their own criminal investigation as we speak. And um, the RCMP is the Royal Canadian something police, I forget. The, Mount, the Mounties, yeah. And they're okay. it's essentially the Canadian FBI, although mu- much uh, dangerously under-resourced and and from what I've understood from this, this reporting, um, totally, uh, over its head, you know, in, in over its head with this case, wow. and a very, very weak understanding of cryptocurrency. Um, okay. But anyway, you were saying people interviewed by them say what? So yeah, the people who've been interviewed by them also have the sense that they have great suspicions about whether cotton is really dead. And so that leads us to the, the mastermind theory, which is that, Cotton is not some, you know, amateur fuck up who who got in over his head, but instead that this was very well plotted and that the whole thing is a cover up, <laughs> basically, and that he is um he very carefully over the years was able to move money off of the exchange in a controlled way to accounts that he controlled and that it was in fact an exit scheme. That was designed design, as designed from the beginning, but it was an exit scheme that he executed, and that the final step was um, when things became uh, started to get da- risky, dangerous for him. When basically the the public started to be 
become aware that Quadriga was running fractionally, which means you know they didn't have enough money to pay back their investors. That that there were lawsuits. That there was increasing um, scrutiny. That he pulled the plug and uh, went to India and faked his own death, and is now sitting uh, on an island somewhere, you know, perhaps with a new face um, and and new ide- identification and all the rest. Um, perhaps with a, you know his own personal plane. He's a has a pilot's license and a, a boat. He has his his boating license, and and of course the tens or hundred you know hundreds of millions of dollars that he's uh, stolen. And so I, in the in the piece, I lay out exactly how that might have happened, and and it is it is plausible. It's not again, it's not the most likely scenario, but of course for an exit scheme to work, especially one on this scale, it has to appear uh, implausible to the public. Otherwise, he would never get away with it. You know, the, the public has to believe that he's dead. And, 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 and at this point, that's, that's the case. Most people do, except, except for the people closest to it who, who have, as I said, um, some great suspicions about uh, the narrative, and 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 think that he could have very very well have uh, taken taken the money off, and 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 that he hasn't. And the reasons, uh, as far as I recall, or not the reasons, but some of the evidence that supports this theory are that um, there was a safe that he talked about that was bolted. Uh, to the the rafters in his attic, which had been removed before his death. And then there was another one you said that like employees remembered, or, or I don't remember if it was employees, but even maybe acquaintances uh, remembered seeing him in various like international airports carrying like $50,000 of cash and stuff like that. So you were saying that there might have been times when he was like moving money offshore, essentially. Is that- in theory, he wouldn't have had to do it that way necessarily. I think the the sort of the most interesting possibility uh, is, and this is something I know the FBI is investigating because um, they've asked experts that I've interviewed about it, uh, was that we know he was conducting these <clears throat> somewhat ludicrously high risk uh, margin trades on on obscure forms of cryptocurrency on on other exchanges. So, in other words, he took a bunch of money off of Quadriga that should have been. You know, the pooled money from his his people who were trading on the platform, moved it into a personal account on other another exchange or several other exchanges, and and made uh, on those exchanges use the money to make these bets. And and what we know is is that um, you know we know some of those trades and they're crazy trades, basically um, real long shot trades. So so one argument is well he was desperate and he was trying to get himself out of a hole that he that, that's sort of in the fuck up theory. But another is that they were su- they were such high risk trades and they were such exotic uh, trades that they could have been designed in such a way that the person that he was trading with on the platform could have been someone who controlled an account, you know, someone known to him. It could have been him. Um, and essentially, there's this idea that he could have been laundering money through these high risk trades on another platform. Now it's a risky. It's risky um, because on these platforms, when you're you know trading funds, you know anybody on the platform can trade with you, and there's a, and and to depend on the platform, it's usually pretty public when you're trading um, you know a lot of of currency at, at one time. So 
and yet there's a way, you know, from speaking with, with experts and, in, in, you know, currency exchange and, and, and in, and, and cryptocurrency exchange in particular, they say it is possible that that could have happened. So that, that would have probably been the most likely way he would have got huge amounts of money off of, uh, Quadriga and into anonymous accounts that he controlled some other way. So that's, that's, that's sort of the best going theory of how it happened. Although, yes, there's, you know, we know he had tons of cash. Uh, you know, I've seen photographs of his kitchen where he just has piles of, of cash on the, you know, on the kitchen table. Um, you know, maybe a million dollars or so in one photograph. And so he, he, he did have a lot of cash. He, um, there's also reason to believe he had a lot of ether. This is something I didn't have space to write about in the article, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that he had a ton of ether in his private, that it was privately held by him. Um, so, uh, and that he didn't disclose in his will or in his other, you know, certainly not in any tax, uh, tax returns or anything like that. So there's enough there that makes this idea plausible, um, or possible. Um, and it can't really be tested unless you dig up the body. In some ways, the biggest obstacle to this theory is the fact that there was a body that was transferred from India to Canada and was buried uh, in a cemetery outside of in Halifax. So yeah. you could, in theory, dig up the body. And, um, and that's what a lot of you know, observers want Canadian authorities to do. Um, but but to this point, the RCMP has shown no inclination to do that. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so we're we're over time, but just quickly before we go, so like just you know, there were a, lo- a number of theories online about the circumstances surrounding his death. Do you think that he's actually dead? And also, this is two questions in one. What is your sense of what's happening with law enforcement? Like I said, I think he's probably dead. <laughs> I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm at, I'm somewhere around 80% myself, I would say. I think in some ways the hardest, yeah, when you, the, the, the most difficult thing um, to overcome with the mastermind theory is the fact is, is his wife's role in it. And, um, you know, it's hard to imagine that if he'd had faked his death, that she wouldn't have been in on it because basically you're asking her to, she witnessed his last 24 hours in the hospital when he was very sick and she flew back with the body. Um, so assuming that, you know, in, if, if he did fake his own death, then you'd have to assume that she was in on it, which then begs the question, well, why would he fake his death in such a way that uh, his wife had to keep up the act and come back to Canada and keep up the act for year, many years uh, and and that's that's sort of the trickiest part of it. Um, you can make you can make you know there are arguments for how that might have happened. There are theories about it, but that's that's sort of the most outlandish aspect of it. In terms of the investigations, my sense is that the FBI investigation is is serious and thorough, and that they have a lot of information that nobody else does, including information from a lot of these other exchanges that Cotton had moved Quadriga funds to. And those exchanges have not as far as I was able to gather, have not spoken to the RCMP or any other um, investigative body. And so it's very possible that the FBI will come out with some kind of uh, findings that are more substantial uh, or change the narrative in some way. But it's also very possible that they basically, you know, essentially uncover the same information, but in greater detail. And, and therefore, you know, we don't get any farther in our understanding of, 
of the case. Um, you know, and I guess at a certain point, the question will be whether the FBI a- asks the RCMP to authorize um, digging up the body. Yeah. Yeah. I think the part that's confusing for me is if he did unbolt the safe, then that kind of lends credence to some the idea that something about this was premeditated, right? Because if you accidentally die, like you're not going to be like, oh, I need to take these funds. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's <laughs> right. The part where- yeah. The whole thing with the wall, not having the wallet, um, the keys to the wallet or that he was the only one who had, that doesn't add up. I mean, it just... Uh, you know, he's, we have, you know, podcast interviews with him, uh, from, you know, a year before he died where he talks about how important it is to never, you know, to have, have plans for what to do if somebody, you know, what to do with your keys. It's it's sort of, you know, crypto 101, you know, as I understand it. And so that was the most outlandish part of, of the original version of the case to folks who knew him and in in the community, they thought it was inconceivable that he would not have a backup plan, not only, you know, for his, for his, his death, but even if he's kidnapped or, you know, uh, incapacitated in some way that, and and he, and he did in fact tell people, his friends and family that he had, you know, there was a kill switch that, that if something had happened to him, that these codes would go out to his friends and family. And so that part of it is very, mysterious and and sort of doesn't doesn't make sense like although to be honest you know there's a lot that doesn't make sense about <laughs> and that's what's fascinating about the, theory, the the case is that there's no theory of the three ones that i laid out i think there's none that totally works there there are flaws in each of them and and um you know inconsistencies and so it allows one to entertain um every possibility basically okay well i'm sure my listeners will keep noodling on this um that we are well over time but this was just so fascinating i (laughs) I, i'm so glad that you came on the show thank you so much for coming on unconfirmed thanks thanks for having me on don't forget next up is the news recap stick around for this week in crypto after this short break crypto.com sees the future of cryptocurrency in every wallet have you seen the mco visa card a metal card powered by crypto, loaded with perks including up to 5% back on all your spending and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? With Crypto.com, not only can you spend your crypto, but you can grow it too. Earn up to 6% per year on the most popular coins like BTC, XRP, LTC, and up to 12% per year on stable coins like PAX or TUSD. Just a few taps before you start receiving interest every week. Join the over 1 million others and download the Crypto.com app today. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. The biggest news this week was that Ethereum researcher Virgil Griffith was arrested at LAX on Thanksgiving for assisting North Korea in evading sanctions. Afterward, many crypto people made comments on Twitter like that what Virgil did could help North Koreans break their dependence on the state or saying that it goes too far to say diplomacy with the North Korean government could never help the North Korean people or that what he did could bring out peace between the two Koreas and other and other comments that indicated that people in the crypto community don't seem to know much about North Korea. This created a lot of cognitive dissonance for those of us who do have a fair amount of knowledge about North Korea. This was not that long after we saw everybody up in arms about censorship by Americans to appease the Chinese government. 
So to see the same people were now saying, wait a minute, let's not pass judgment on the guy who helped the most censorial dictatorship on the planet, which doesn't even let its country on the internet at all and doesn't let its citizens leave, doesn't let its citizens travel within the country without approval, and the country that will also lock you, your family, and two generations after you in a prison camp if you do something it perceives to be against it. That was just like, wait, so if you're fighting for censorship resistance, why are you justifying the behavior of somebody who was helping the number one biggest censor in the world? And it was also especially jarring to see this from the unicorns and rainbows crowd. So I ended up tweeting what I believe may be my first tweet storm ever, which states some facts about North Korea, just to make it clear what words like peace and public mean in the North Korean context. So for instance, public in our countries sounds innocuous because it indicates everything's out in the open, what is there to hide? But North Korea, public, means it's approved by the dictatorship, meaning it's something that does not, at the very least, does not hurt Kim Jong-un's ability to continue oppressing the 25 million people under his rule. So using the word public as it pertains to North Korea actually doesn't have the same innocuous connotation or the concept of peace between North Korea and the South or between North Korea and the U.S., Again, that sounds so nice, but in the North Korean context, it just has a super twisted meaning because that implies that the Kim regime survives, which then, again, means that it continues oppressing 25 million people living there, which doesn't sound like peace to me. It's like being like, oh, we'll let that guy, you know, the, uh, keep all the hostages like, and, and we'll call it peace. So I was surprised by the reaction to my tweet storm because I still wasn't sure if People didn't actually know these things because I was not saying anything even remotely new. But actually, um, somebody tweeted back at me, asked me what the everyday Koreans, North Koreans access is to the Internet. And I realized, whoa, okay, so that is so basic to me. It didn't even occur to me to tweet it. Like when I said that they cannot know information about the outside world without, you know, exposing the Kim regime's lies and getting them in trouble. That meant, of course, that everyday North Korean people are prohibited from accessing the internet. Uh, I'm not even sure how many of them will even know what the internet is. So yes, while in theory, getting cryptocurrency to people in oppressive regimes could very well be helpful in the case of North Korea. How do you even do that if they don't have a way to connect to the internet? And if they, you know, in attempting to do so can risk their lives? So I think some people took my tweet storm as stating some opinion on Virgil, like I saw some stories saying that I was criticizing him, but actually the tweet storm really didn't have that much to do with Virgil. I was just trying to explain that to, to people who, you know, when they were saying these things, that that wasn't exactly what they meant. Like I wanted them to know those words don't have the same meanings that you think they do when you use them applied to North Korea. Like, this is what it means on the ground when you say those things. Um, what I did say about Virgil is that I have no idea what was in his head. Uh, but given the facts about the whole thing, my best guesses are that either he did not know how things work in North Korea, or that if he did, he doesn't really care. So um, Lee Quinn of Coindesk had the best story, just kind of summarizing the whole thing. Reuters reported that Virgil had thought it would be cool if North Korea mined Ether and um, just to show you, you know, North Korea definitely has an interest in cryptocurrency. Bleeping Computer had a story about a fake cryptocurrency trading site that was written with malware that is believed to be created by a North Korean hacking group. 
So now moving on from the censor who won't let his people on the internet at all to the censor that won't let its people onto certain websites on the internet. Second headline, Chinese internet firewall blocks Etherscan. Wong Fi Zhao of Coindesk, who was a recent guest on Unconfirmed, reported that the Chinese firewall has blocked Ethereum block explorer Etherscan since at least October 30th. He writes, quote, this is likely the first known case of a blockchain explorer becoming an internet firewall target and puts Etherscan.io and the company of such blocked information in social media sites as Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. Third headline, could DeFi lending compromise security on proof of stake chains? Haseeb Qureshi of Dragonfly Capital had a fascinating and worrying analysis about how attractive rates for DeFi lending could lower the amount of staking on a proof-of-stake chain, thereby harming the security of the network. Even worse, once that flywheel gets turning, people will want to short ETH, which then increases the demand for borrowing, which then drives the interest rate for lending even higher. So his analysis was based on a paper by Tarun Chitra, who also... Uh, tweeted some of the detail, the technical details about this. For those of you who want to look at those, Eric Connor of Gnosis ETH Hub and Enter the Ether, the Enter into the Ether podcast, put some numbers to this and show that such an attack would be quite expensive. Uh, next headline: China Exchange Watch, Binance getting the cold shoulder. Matthew Graham of Sino Capital, sorry, Sino Global Capital tweeted that Huobi and OKX are getting some level of approval in China, while Binance and international exchanges are getting what he called iced out. A Twitter account related to the Spartan Group stated that they think Binance will still do better over the long term. Next headline, M&A and crypto, barbarians on the blockchain. Token Data published a report on activity in M&A in the crypto space, showing that such deals peaked in 2018 at $2.3 billion and are coming in at around $700 million in 2019. They segment this activity out with one subset being, quote, the M&A barbarians. Trading is crypto's first killer app, providing big exchanges with cash and networks to engage in acquisitions. Unsurprisingly, Coinbase, 16 deals, leads the pack and engages in all types of deals, industry consolidation, regulatory plays, talent, and some others. Uh, some other categories of, of this activity include pay-to-play and regulatory M&A. It's worth checking out the full report or at least the tweet storm on it. Finally, are Hong Kong protests driving adoption of crypto? A dive into the numbers. Longhash had a great article exploring whether or not the protests in Hong Kong have spurred adoption of crypto. The short answer is no, but it is worth looking at the charts and graphs in the article to see how they arrive at this conclusion and why that might be. Finally, fun bits. Coin Jazeera hit it out of the park with a hilarious recap of the Virgil incident. The headline, Ethereum's real use case finally discovered, helping North Korea. I'll just read a bit. Griffith was warned by everyone not to go to North Korea and be so overt about pitching Ethereum's first and only real use case. Everyone from Vitalik Buterin, his friends on Facebook, followers on Twitter, his parents, to even Stevie Wonder himself claimed he was retarded, saying, even my blind ass can see that's a dumb idea. Our reporters have learned that even libertarian hero Ross Ulbricht wrote him a letter on his best toilet paper to call him dumb for going. None of this would deter the brave and foolish Griffith from attempting to liberate the North Korean people by teaching their benevolent leader how to launder money. 
The Ethereum Foundation reluctantly accepted this daring pivot into helping oppressive regimes. They rationalized that as long as Virgil didn't get caught, everything would be fine. Of course, as attention, attention-loving nerds often do, Griffith posted about his federal crime on Facebook, Twitter, Craigslist, and random billboards overlooking the highway. This is actually, most of it is a true fact. He even went so far as to alert the FBI themselves as to what he was doing because they seemed so supportive of his good decision-making and wanted to learn everything they could to help. All right, that is it for this week's news. To learn more about Nathaniel and Quadriga, as well as the stories from this week's news recap, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoy this episode, please give us a top rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find out about the show. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Factbook Corning, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.